Well, would you turn your Bibles with me tonight to 2 Kings chapter 4. 2 Kings chapter 4, as we now continue our study of God's servant Elisha. And just as we begin, I, I want to recognize that we have some friends uh, I've been hearing from and expressing thanks. They're listening to recordings of the evening messages, and we're just blessed uh, to know that Though our gatherings here at Sunday evening at Reformation Bible are quite small, that we have some friends who are listening in online in various places, and uh, we're very grateful and pray that these things can be encouragement to them. Tonight we're going to look at chapter 4, verses 1 through 7. I, I want to press on the rest of the chapter, but there's a lot here, and I thought it'd be good for us to slow down tonight, as Dale Ralph Davis does in his commentary. I should note that I do have one extra commentary that we ordered. If you would like to take one, the deal is you, you need to read it. Uh, but uh, trust you'll be blessed as some of us are following along with uh, Dr. Davis and his commentary. Very helpful and pastoral. Let's give attention now to the reading of God's word. 2 Kings chapter 4, verses 1 through 7. Now a certain woman of the wives of the sons of the prophets cried out to Elisha, Your servant, my husband, is dead, and you know that your servant feared Yahweh, and the creditor has come to take my two children to be his slaves. And Elisha said to her, What shall I do for you? Tell me, what do you have in the house? And she said, Your servant woman has nothing in the house except a jar of oil. Then he said, Go, ask for vessels for yourself from those outside, from all your neighbors, even empty vessels. Do not get a few. And you shall go in and shut the door behind you and your sons and pour out into all the vessels, and you shall set aside what is full. So she went from him and shut the door behind her and her sons, They were bringing the vessels to her, and she poured. Now it happened that when the vessels were full, she said to her son, Bring me another vessel. And he said to her, There is not one vessel more. And the oil stopped. Then she came and told the man of God. And he said, Go, sell the oil and pay your debt, and you and your sons can live on the rest. Amen. This is God's word. Let's pray one more time. Our Father in heaven and gracious spirit, giver of the word, we pray that tonight you impress the truths of this small portion of your word upon our hearts, that we may press on to know you. We ask this in your son's name. Amen. It's an interesting story, and I remember here, this is one of the stories I I remember hearing as a boy in Sunday school. It was a common story and maybe up on the flannel graph and, and uh, I cherish those days. And this is one of those stories in Sunday school class when you're sitting there like a little boy, even when you have the Wigglies and you're actually, you're, you're caught, you're, your attention's captured because what's going to happen? What's going to happen? How, how, how is this woman and her sons going to be provided for? And this is amazing. There's these jars, these vessels, and God provides oil from nothing. It's an amazing story. But we want to step back, as we often need to, in Old Testament narrative, and to help us 
get the impression of the full impression is, is to remember the historical context. And we've learned the historical context. We may not know all the details, but we have learned where Elijah the Tishbite and then his, his predecessor, Elisha, are ministering. They are not ministering in the Bible Belt. This is not an easy place to minister. They are ministering largely in the north of Israel, where Ahab and Jezebel, though they are no longer around, their impression, their influence remains. It has been a godless area, not only godless, not only pagan, not only idolatrous and blasphemous, but it has been hostile to the truth, hostile. You remember Elijah fleeing for his life from Jezebel and and learning, we've learned along the way that there were times when Ahab and Jezebel and would carry out hunts for prophets of God, of Yahweh, and execute them. And the only way they survived at times was by literally hiding in caves and being provided for by others. To be a man of God, to be a prophet or a son of the prophet, as verse four, chapter 4, verse 1, the, the husband of this woman apparently was, was a preacher. He was a pastor, if you will. He was one of the men in northern Israel who knew the word of God, who was trained. He was one of the sons of the prophets. It's just a phrase for one of the men who, who spoke and delivered the word of God. And to be that kind of man in that kind of culture was to have a, a mark on your head. It wasn't easy. This, doubtless, this was not the first time that this woman the pastor's wife, if you will, the preacher's wife, faced difficulty. And it is a bit of an aside, but I don't think it's irrelevant to the text because you don't, it's, it's here. This man is a preacher of the word of God and the scriptures are showing a spotlight on the, the particular difficulty of a woman who's married to a man of God in a godless culture. And of course, even though our culture is messed up and bad right now, there's nothing going on that compares to this. However, the church of Jesus Christ needs to market that God cares deeply about the women who are married to these guys who preach his word. And uh, I've said it many times, and I won't tire of saying it. You ask me who my heroes are in the faith, and without blinking, I'll say pastor's wives. Because nobody has any idea as to what these women endure, and in their position, they really don't have much to do except throw their their hearts and their burdens before the Lord. And here's this woman, this woman who's, uh, uh, her husband is a, every indication he's a godly man. Now, now we could be tempted to be harsh on him. How did he leave his wife in debt? Well, he doesn't exactly have a promising career in a good territory. Things have been hard. His family likely has, has had difficulty it hasn't been an easy go up in the north of Israel to, to be a, a preacher, a pastor, a prophet. It's been difficult. It hasn't been a time of success. He hasn't been a time of much encouragement up there in the north. This is very, very difficult. And then, on top of all that difficulty of just living in that place under that kind of oppressive evil influence of Ahab and Jezebel and their prodigy. 
then catastrophe strikes. And one of the reasons I love the Bible is it does not describe life with rose-colored glasses. It tells it like it is. And we know this happens. We know this happens to godly, faithful men and women who are going along in their life, serving the Lord as best they can, and then some kind of circumstance comes along, and we just scratch our heads and say, how could that possibly happen? These people love Jesus. They're serving Jesus. They're being faithful. And, and Dale Ralph Davis does a good job in his commentary of pointing out some of the examples we could all think of. You know, a, a, a faithful couple in ministry, their child has a car accident and is killed, and, or, or, or a spouse perhaps gets cancer. And, and we want to know why, and maybe more we want to know, where is God? Where is God when, in such difficult circumstances, his people who are serving him faithfully, even they are subject to unspeakable sorrows? It's bad enough that the woman's husband dies, apparently at a young age, because the the sons are still around, and there's there's debt. There's just and and doubtless the debt was due to simply. The attempt to live, to provide shelter and food and clothing. And so they were indebted to whoever the creditors were. They didn't have a choice. And now she is in this wretched, dire situation where the only way that her debts, the debts of her and her husband, could be paid was for her sons to be enslaved to be bought, and for them to work off the family debt. So not only would this poor woman be bereft of her godly husband, again, there's nothing in the text that casts a shadow or a question on this man's ministry, nothing of the sort. Not only is she bereft of her godly husband, but she is soon to be bereft of her only two sons, which is a death sentence emotionally and a death sentence possibly physically because there is no state-sponsored care for the widows program. You starve, you sit on the side of the street, and you die. It's awful. It's a very, very moving situation. And I am so thankful again that the Bible records accounts like this because it helps me know that God, the God we worship, the God we know, the God we love, knows where we live, knows the kind of heartaches that can come into our lives and into our experience that defy explanation, heartaches that cannot be articulated except through weeping and tears and silence. Where is God? Well, let's first ask the question, who is God in relation to these things? 
I want to look with you for a moment at a few verses in, in the law of God. In Exodus chapter 22, verses 22 and 23, God had commanded to his people through Moses, you shall not afflict any widow or orphan. You shall not afflict any widow or orphan. Among the gods of the world, the God of Israel, Yahweh, is alone and unique in his zealous care for widows and orphans. Baal doesn't care for widows and orphans. Asherah doesn't care for widows and orphans. Only Yahweh does. And he commanded his people, you shall not afflict any widow or orphan. And then verse 23, if you afflict him at all, the orphan, and by extension, the widow, and if he does cry out to me, I will surely hear his cry. Keep that in mind. Deuteronomy chapter 27, verse 19. God's so serious about his care and for the widow and the orphan among his people that in the list of blessings and curses, God says, cursed is he. That's strong. Damned is he. That's what it means. Cursed or damned is he who distorts the justice due an alien, orphan and widow. And all the people shall say amen. Wow. And then Deuteronomy, back to Deuteronomy chapter 10, verse 18. These laws, we learn, flow out of the very character of God. Remember I said we want to ask who is God? Well, in particular, in relation to the subject of widows and orphans. God had these laws about not afflicting widows and orphans because of who he is and his character. And in Deuteronomy 10, verse 18, we learn that Yahweh, God of Israel, executes justice for the orphan and the widow and shows his love for the alien by giving him food and clothing. That's who he is. That's the nature of his heart. A loving God, full of compassion for the innocent, for the helpless, for the weak. Psalm 146, one more verse, a little background study here. Psalm 146, verse 9. Beautiful. We love this about our God. Yahweh protects the strangers. He supports the fatherless and the widow, but he thwarts the way of the wicked. He supports the fatherless and the widow, but he thwarts the way of the wicked. This is who he is. This is, this is the God of Israel. This is Yahweh. This is our God. And certainly, as we see the ministry of the Lord Jesus Christ, this is the hallmark of his ministry, of ministering to the most helpless, the most weak, the most sick, the most discarded, because he is one with the Father and shares the character of the Father. That's the character of God. But here, back to chapter 4 of 2 Kings, this woman's husband has died. And we learn in chapter 4, verse 1, 
that she cries out to Elisha. Now here we are introduced to her faith. Her faith is in the God of the scriptures, the God that we have just read of in these various verses in the law. Of course, this is before the time that Psalms, the Psalms were written. But she understands that Yahweh, the God of Israel, is not like Baal, not like Asherah. And so in her extremity, she, in the midst of her tears and her sorrow, musters up the strength to cry out to Elisha. Intensity there. There's a a need and there's a determination. And she cries out to Elisha. Because Elisha at that point is known to be, as it were, God's representative to Israel, especially in the north at that time. It's not that she's not crying out to God. It's just that she pours out her heart to this man. And it's likely that Elisha, as a prophet and leader among the prophets, knew her husband. And she cries out to him, verse 1, Your servant, my husband, is dead, and you know that your servant feared Yahweh, And the creditor has come to take my two children to be his slaves. Her husband feared Yahweh, served Yahweh, and Elisha knew that. So she cries out to him. And notice that she, her faith is such in the character of Yahweh that she believes, I'm not saying that she's processing this, you know, rationally in the moment, it's just, it's just her godly reaction. She believes with her husband, who is now gone in the character of Yahweh, as revealed in the scriptures, in the law of Moses. She believes in his character and who he is. So her, her knee-jerk, her reaction, her impulse is, all I have to do is tell him about my situation. I just have to make it known, not that he doesn't know. But she doesn't go through all this rigmarole about, I need this, this, that, or the other thing. She considers the character of God to be such that if she appeals and makes her situation known, that God, through his servant, Elisha, will take care of what matters most to her. It's an expression of faith. It's not, a com- it's not an ungodly complaint, it's a holy complaint. And it's an important lesson for us. You know, our prayers, it's, it is completely understandable on a day-to-day basis. Our prayers are, um, maybe don't have the intensity uh, every day of, of a high intensity. There's a, you know, just like in a relationship, you, you, you have moments of intensity. And then, and then as you go about your day-to-day process, you speak with one another and it's, it's good that on a day-to-day basis, our prayers to God perhaps are, you know, Lord, please help me today, and um, I have these various things, and please be with my family and my wife and my children, and to bring these matters before God in a certain way. But I want you to understand, and some of you young people especially here tonight, but old as well, that when the heartache comes, whatever the situation is, and it may not be, it, it, it may be a situation where it was your fault. 
unlike this situation, but whatever the situation is that comes that presents to you a pressing, urgent, heart-rending need, you cry out to God. And don't be casual about it. Cry out to him. That's biblical. In fact, there's something unbiblical about being just calm. There's nothing godly about that. This is breaking your heart. This is, this is shattering your hopes. This is, this is very pressing to you. Make your matter known to the Lord. Pour out your heart to him. Call upon him like this woman does. So she does so. She's a, she's a woman of faith and her faith is exemplary. Even in the midst of her sorrow, her faith is evident. Elisha says to her, verse 2, what, what shall I do for you? Tell me, what do you have in the house? And she said, your servant woman has nothing in the house except a jar of oil. She doesn't claim to be able to fix the situation. She's quick to admit her need. She has nothing. She can't address her situation. She has no resources in and of herself to address her need. It's another evidence of her faith. In this way, she's not impressed with herself for her own ability to change her situation. She's very quick to acknowledge that it's just desperate. Here, especially in the United States, and maybe especially here in New England, we're not so quick to acknowledge that. But we need to. We need to. Because that's always, in reality, the situation. We are always in need. Elisha asks her the question. She tells, I I have nothing. I have nothing. There's no resources that she can call upon. There's no plan. She is in the hands of God, shut up to the mercy of God. And so Elisha, from God, undoubtedly moved by the Spirit, tells her this plan. And it's a plan that will not only meet her need, but also glorify God in the meeting of her need. Here we are tonight, thousands of years later, and we're learning about God through the way that he met the needs of this woman, this widow. Seems strange to us at first. Go ask for vessels for yourself. I mean, the, the boys are going around knocking on doors. Yeah, excuse me, Mrs. So-and-so, um, my mom's wondering if you have any uh, empty clay pots around. Oh, okay, sure, here. <laughs> and everybody in the village is seeing these two boys of this prophet who's now deceased, running all over town and carrying back these pots, back these clay pots back to the house and just going everywhere. What is going on? People have to witness some, something's going on. And yet it's very interesting that God insists through Elisha that what he's going to do is going to be done in private. That's interesting. I don't know what to make of that, but 
Again, Dale Ralph Davis, I think, is helpful in in reflecting that maybe that there are times when God does things in meeting our needs that are in some ways between us and him. That it doesn't always need to be broadcast and put up on a billboard like evangelicals love to do. We, I mean, we feel like anything that we see that God does, we gotta, we gotta get it out there and tell everybody about. It. No, not necessarily. There's something beautiful and precious and holy about God meeting the needs of His people sometimes in, in behind the scenes ways of His people knowing instances between them and God of how He provided and. No one else could see. No one else was there in the room besides the woman and her sons, seeing one vessel after another being filled. He tells her what to do. It seems strange. It's, uh, it seems very irrelevant to the pressing need of a grieving widow and her sons about to be sold into slavery. But again, her faith is evident And the scriptures here are putting before us the faith of this nameless widow for us to follow and to model. She's an example to us. Her faith is in God and his character. Her faith is humble. She doesn't claim to have any resources falsely in and of herself. And next we see that when she's told to follow through on these rather strange instructions, she, she does it. Verse 4, she's told what to do. And then verse 5, what do we find? So she went from him and shut the door behind her and her sons. They were bringing the vessels to her and she poured. She does exactly what the Lord commanded of her through Elisha. That's her faith. It, it's not too humble a thing for her to do. Okay, God wants me to do that. That's what I need to do. I'll do that. She doesn't need to pray about it. She doesn't need to seek discernment. It's very clear from the servant of God what she is to do. And, and she's, she's willing to do it. It doesn't matter what people think. People, I'm sure, are asking, why, why is she sending her boys to go over at all town and get these vessels? What on earth is going on? She's lost it. She's nuts. She doesn't care. When it comes to obeying God, it's just what she does. Even in the midst of her grief, it's just what she does. Well, verse 6, now it happened that when the vessels were, were full, she said to her son, bring me another vessel. And he said to her, there is not one more vessel more. And the oil stopped. Now, I have heard of messages or sermons or commentaries that make a lot out of this and basically infer that this woman should have sent her son to get more vessels, that it's a, it's a lesson of her little faith. And that, that, that's ridiculous. There's nothing in it that teaches that. That's so typical of us. <laughs> to take something that's just plain and simple, it's a joyous thing. I mean, it ought to be just wonderful. She, her boys bring back all these empty vessels and God is filling them with oil out of nothing and they're full 
and, and to the point that there's not one single vessel that was collected that's not full to overflowing. And only then does the oil stop. What's the lesson there? God does that kind of thing. <laughs> that's it. <laughs> it's just wonderful. That's the kind of God we serve. So let's not make this into a lesson about the woman's faith. or It is about the woman's faith, but it's exemplary. There's nothing in the text that indicates her faith is lacking. She's to be praised for her obedience and her humility and faith. And what a, what a lot of faith. I mean, think about it. I don't know how this works, but the door's closed. The boys have brought all the vessels in. You're in the house. The boys are there. Okay. <laughs> there is a big, empty clay pot. Elisha said that we were to collect it, and uh, I, I was to pour oil into the, the little jar of oil that we have, I'm somehow supposed to pour this into this big empty thing. So just imagine, she knows how much is in the little jar. She told him in verse uh, 2, I have nothing in the house except a jar of oil. She doesn't have a tub of oil, a pool of oil. She has a little jar of oil. So there she is. There's, I don't know how big these pots are, but they've got to be pretty good size. She takes a little jar of oil, starts pouring. Mm. Mm. <laughs> oh, it goes right up to the top. Huh. One of the boys takes the full thing, pulls, puts it aside, brings over the empty one. Let's see how this goes. Keep going. I mean, wow. It's joyous. It's wonderful. Because, verse 7, she came and told the man of God, that's Elisha, and he said, go sell the oil and pay your debt, and you and your sons can live on the rest. This isn't a little bit of oil. This is a significant amount. Enough to pay off whatever the significant, I mean, the debt had to be significant for her two sons to be sold into slavery. That's going to be paid off. And there's going to be enough for her and her sons to survive. Must have been somewhat humorous. The doors were closed and the boys had collected all these pots and vessels from around town, the village. And then later that day or whenever the time was, people see these boys going out like this carrying the oil over to the market or over to so-and-so and, and sell it. And then they're going back with a wad of cash. And they go on and get another vessel. And people are saying, what? what's going on? I mean, how is this possibly happening? Miraculous. It's a display of the miraculous power of God. But it ought to move us to love God, that the displays of his power are not only for the display of his own glory, but for the good of his most needy people. That's our God.
the one who cares for the widow and the orphan. What a God he is. What a kind and gracious God. And mark it that in the kingdom of God, I I understand that for now we don't see in every instance the jars being full as it were. We see things that break our hearts in this world. We see godly men and women go through times of incredible suffering and and maybe a long time goes and, and maybe the heartache, maybe we never see an immediate provision like this. But we ought to mark it that in the coming kingdom of God and of Christ that some of the women who are going to be most honored by God are going to be the women like this woman. And I really believe with all my heart that the men and women who reign with Christ among them are going to be women like this woman whose faith was expressed in the most heart-rending and helpless of situations. I want to close by just reading from our guide, as it were, our friend, Dr. Dale Ralph Davis, and his commentary as we enjoy this. He says this, the principle, he's reflecting on the last verse of this section, the principle is the same. It's God's practice to make his goodness overflow. Christians then have to be very careful. Watch your cup. God tends to make it overflow, and then you have a mess of blessing on your hands. Have you ever had a mess of blessing on your hands? I have. I have. And then one last observation he makes. He says, I want you to take a good look at this widow again, this obscure, nameless woman. Do you know that our writer in 1 Kings, back to 1 Kings chapter 16, verses 23 through 28, describes the reign of one of the most important figures in Israelite politics and history, King Omri? You remember that? Four verses? Omri, and he was a significant king in Israel's history, for all of his apparent importance, gets six verses from our writer. This Yahweh-fearing widow gets more press than Omri, which shows that God's desperate people matter to him. What a God we serve. Let's pray. Our Father in heaven, help us to remember from this story, this true story, and many others like it in the scriptures, your true character. God of majesty, God on high, but a God who's passionate in his love and care and tending to the cry of the most needy and helpless. We love you for this. Help us to be more like you. Help us to esteem highly those whom you esteem. And we pray that you would help each one of us, men and women, boys and girls here, to model the exemplary faith of this grieving, obedient widow. 
We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.